everyone, welcome to Poetry Says, I'm Alice. This morning in Melbourne, it's one of those foggy mornings. It doesn't look like it's going to lift. It's already nearly half past nine and still pretty foggy out there. And it just felt like the right morning to talk to you about this poem. I've been waiting for quite a while to get up the confidence to approach this one. It's Anne Carson's The Glass Essay. It's a long poem. And for me, it's interesting for so many reasons, one of which is that it seems to exist in this really interesting space, kind of in the middle of a Venn diagram that encompasses the lyric poem, narrative poem, and confessional poem. And those three terms are terms that I've really struggled to come to understand, but through looking at this poem today, I hope to kind of tease out maybe some definitions or maybe just to think a little bit more about how any definitions, any categorizations are kind of not that useful sometimes, not that interesting. And to think a little bit about what we expect from a female poet in terms of confession and revelation, as opposed to Um, the standards that we might apply to a male poet. So that's one aspect of it. And there's all kinds of other angles um, from which you could come at this poem. You can look at it in terms of biography. Throughout the poem, Carson is weaving in a whole lot of really interesting biographical facts about Emily Bronte, who she says early on is her favourite writer. She's also dealing with the aftermath of an affair. She's just broken up with um, a partner of five years. And then she goes up to visit her mum up in what sounds like the Canadian moors. I didn't realise that there were moors in Canada. But um, yeah, that's the kind of landscape that her mum is living in. And so she goes to visit her mum and there's all kinds of interesting discussion about that relationship And then further into the poem, she goes to visit her dad, who has very advanced Alzheimer's. And there's a really moving section about that particular interaction. So there's a lot in this. And what I'm going to do is just focus on the first three sections and try and do a close-ish reading of those three. And then I'm going to just read um, probably my favorite part, which is called Hero, just as an example of this kind of intersection of lyric, narrative, and confessional. So when I first read this poem, I was intensely jet-lagged. I think I had fallen asleep at six and woken up at midnight, and I just had that feeling that there was no chance I was going to get back to sleep. So I picked up this book in the middle of the night and started reading it and frantically started making notes because from the very first sentence, it started to really engage me, and there were so many ideas coming off it. So I've written all over it. Some of those notes don't make a great deal of sense, but um, yeah, I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to read the first three sections to you and then we can kind of go through it nice and slowly. So for reference, the poem is collected in a book called Glass and God, known I think in the UK as Glass Irony and God, um, that was first published in 1992. Carson was born in 1950, so we can kind of surmise that she would have been writing this work 
maybe in her late 30s, early 40s. I mean, she might have started it much earlier in life, I'm not sure. But the some of the age references she makes to her parents kind of put her at around about that age, if that's interesting to you. All right, so this is the first section. It's just called I. I can hear little clicks inside my dream. Night drips its silver tap down the back. At 4am, I wake, thinking of the man who left in September. His name was Law. My face in the bathroom mirror has white streaks down it. I rinse the face and return to bed. Tomorrow, I am going to visit my mother. This is the second section, it's called She. She lives on a moor in the north. She lives alone. Spring opens like a blade there. I travel all day on trains and bring a lot of books. Some for my mother, some for me, including the collected works of Emily Bronte. This is my favorite author. Also my main fear, which I mean to confront. Whenever I visit my mother, I feel I am turning into Emily Bronte. My lonely life around me like a moor. My ungainly body stumping over the mudflats with a look of transformation that dies when I come in the kitchen door. What meat is it, Emily, we need? And this is the third section, it's called Three. Three silent women at the kitchen table. My mother's kitchen is dark and small, but out the window there is the moor, paralysed with ice. It extends as far as the eye can see, over flat miles, to a solid, unlit white sky. Mother and I are chewing lettuce carefully. The kitchen wall clock emits a ragged low buzz that jumps once a minute over the twelve. I have Emily, page 216, propped open on the sugar bowl. But I am covertly watching my mother. A thousand questions hit my eyes from the inside. My mother is studying her lettuce. I turn to page 217. And this section is in quotes. In my flight through the kitchen, I knocked over Hareton, who was hanging a litter of puppies from a chair back in the doorway. End quote. It is as if we have all been lowered into an atmosphere of glass. Now and then a remark trails through the glass. Taxes on the back lot. Not a good melon. Too early for melons. Hairdresser in town found God. Closes shop every Tuesday. Mice in the tea towel drawer again. Little pellets. Chew off the corners of the napkins. If they knew what paper napkins cost nowadays. Rain tonight, rain tomorrow. That volcano in the Philippines added again. What's her name Anderson died? No, not Shirley, the opera singer, negress, cancer. Not eating your garnish, you don't like pimento? Out the window I can see dead leaves ticking over the flatland and dregs of snow scarred by pine filth. At the middle of the moor, where the ground goes down into a depression, the ice has begun to unclench. Black water comes curdling up like anger. 
My mother speaks suddenly. That psychotherapy's not doing you much good, is it? You aren't getting over him. My mother has a way of summing things up. She never liked law much, but she liked the idea of me having a man and getting on with life. Well, he's a taker and you're a giver. I hope it works out, was all she said after she met him. Give and take were just words to me at the time. I had not been in love before. It was like a wheel rolling downhill. But early this morning, while Mother slept and I was downstairs, reading the part in Wuthering Heights where Heathcliff clings at the lattice in the storm, sobbing, come in, come in, to the ghost of his heart's darling. I fell on my knees on the rug and sobbed too. She knows how to hang puppies, that Emily. It isn't like taking aspirin, you know, I answer feebly. Dr. Hoare says grief is a long process. She frowns. What does it accomplish, all that raking up the past? Oh, I spread my hands. I prevail. I look her in the eye. She grins. Yes, you do. So that's the first three sections there. And already you get a pretty clear picture of where the speaker is in terms of being just past this breakup and the relationship she has with her mum. And she's talking about pretty huge emotional, I suppose, topics, grief and heartbreak, but she's not doing it in a way where she's really asking you to feel sorry for her, I don't think. She's being very clear and factual. She starts the poem with, I can hear little clicks inside my dream, Night drips its silver tap down the back. At 4am I wake thinking of the man who left in September. His name was Law. So really factual statements just kind of saying, okay, this is what's happening. And even though she starts off inside a dream, she's recognising that all that's happening there is that there's a tap dripping and it's making these little clicking sounds that wake her up. And then she goes on to say, my face in the bathroom mirror has white streaks down it. So she doesn't say, oh, I've been crying so much that my face is all blotchy. She just says, my face has white streaks down it. I rinse the face and return to bed. Tomorrow I am going to visit my mother. So just three stanzas, 11 lines, and already you've got quite a good picture of what this speaker is going to be like and where she is in her life and what she's about to do. It's a fantastic setup, I think. There's some key lines in the second section, she, that I think tell you a lot about Anne Carson's mum that without saying, oh, my mum's like this, my mum's this kind of a woman. So she describes her mum by saying, she lives on a moor in the north, she lives alone, spring opens like a blade there. So even spring, up where her mum lives, is something sharp. It can do damage. It's dangerous. There's no softness. And this is a section where she sets up this kind of duality between herself and Emily Bronte, which you could, I mean, you could hear that and go, oh, geez, you're going to compare yourself to Emily Bronte. That's a little bit, it's a bit rich. But she, again, she doesn't do it in a way that makes you think that she's trying to raise herself to that level. She's more just kind of talking about 
Emily's place as a female writer in her time and then the place of a female writer in the time that this poem is being written. And she does that with lines like, my lonely life around me like a moor, my ungainly body stumping over the mud flats with a look of transformation that dies when I come in the kitchen door. So we got this image in our head of the Bronte sisters traipsing over the moors, kind of living this life of the mind, life of imagination. But then we know that they also had to take care of domestic duties and a lot of their writing was done in kind of these stolen moments, like late at night, walking around the kitchen table, kind of in this... They used to do this kind of chanting thing where they would sort of walk around and read out what they'd managed to write that day to each other and that was their way of revising. So this discussion of what it is to have to marry your domestic duties, you know, going to visit your mum and going to visit your dad who has Alzheimer's and also having space for the kind of creative work you want to do. I think that's what she's addressing here. Now this, the third section called three refers to three silent women at the kitchen table. It took me a while to figure that one out. I was waiting for this third person to come along, but there isn't a third person she's just referring again to Emily Bronte there's Anne her mum and Emily in book form propped up on the sugar bowl and I love the way that Anne Carson documents the way her her mother is speaking she's got all these little minute factoids about her life and they're all so small like taxes on the back lot not a good melon too early for melons mice in the tea towel drawer again, rain tonight, rain tomorrow. There's a real sense of despair about those lines, I think, because it's that kind of knowing that tomorrow is going to be like today. And then when she says in the next line, that volcano in the Philippines added again, even something as explosive as a volcano is being miniaturized by saying, oh, it's added again, like it's such a, such a small thing. There's also that sense that this is early in the visit. All the the emotion and the anger that's going to come out later is, at this point, uh, all happening under the surface. She says earlier in that section, Mother and I are chewing lettuce carefully. I mean, you don't need to really chew lettuce carefully, but there's so much tension in that line. There's so much said just by documenting that action. And then the next line, the kitchen wall clock emits a ragged low buzz that jumps once a minute over the 12. Even time is passing in this really tense, like um, irritating way. In fact, I think she comes right out and says it here when she says, it is as if we have all been lowered into an atmosphere of glass. Everything is frozen at this point. But then towards the end of the section, she makes a reference to this space in the middle of the moor where the ground goes down into a depression and the ice has begun to unclench. So with the coming of the spring, there's a little bit of warmth and she says black open water comes curdling up like anger. And that's where her mother starts to speak and says, psychotherapy is not doing you much good. You aren't getting over him. So again, there's these lines between Anne Carson and Emily Bronte. There's also lines between 
Carson and the landscape, her mother and the landscape. She's gradually building up this picture of this frozenness that she feels, having left this relationship behind, gone to visit her mum with whom she has, I think we can pretty safely say, a pretty strained relationship. She's just kind of building these prosaic facts and recounting these conversations one on top of another to build up this this picture. Now, the really interesting thing about Anne Carson is that she's referred to, at least in her bio online, as notoriously reticent. I think that's really interesting because this poem, The Glass Essay, there are some seriously revelatory moments in here when she starts talking about the interactions with her lover and how they broke up, and also when she talks about going to see her dad, she's documenting these intensely painful facts in really clear, clear clear-eyed terms. She's not hiding anything. But I think what people mean when they say notoriously reticent is that she hasn't said in interviews, oh yeah, so in the glass essay I'm talking about my breakup with blah blah. She's um, she's just putting it all into the poem. And for some reason that's not satisfactory. We Perhaps because we don't necessarily want to believe that Anne Carson is the speaker in this poem. Or perhaps because we just, we have an expectation of writers to want to share a huge amount from their personal lives and I think it's probably true to say that we have a higher expectation of that from female writers they'll tend to be asked more probing questions they'll tend they'll tend to be asked to um, justify decisions and talk about things that have happened in their personal lives and their impact on their work much more often than male writers will I think anyway this is obviously based on not based on a uh, comprehensive survey of interviews, but it's definitely, I think, um, a trend that you can see. It's interesting to think about those those ideas of a writer being notoriously reticent when you start to think about what this poem is. So, like I said before, I've been having... It's taken me a really long time to fully understand and I'm still not sure that I fully understand the difference between a lyric poem a narrative poem and a confessional poem and I think that's probably because there's just a lot of overlap in those three terms so again going back to the Poetry Foundation's website they define lyric as a short poem in which the poet or the poet's persona or another speaker expresses personal feelings so that's not that helpful because there's so many instances where personal feelings are expressed in poems that you know you can you can express personal feelings in an experimental poem you can express personal feelings in you know in a haiku which I don't think fits that exact definition of a lyric I guess this is where the idea of the lyric I comes in so when poets use the word I to talk about their feelings and whether that's overdone or uncomfortable for the reader, and then that endless question of how close is this I to you, the actual poet, and how much can I confidently say that I know about you having read this poem? So similarly, the Poetry Foundation defines confessional poetry as vividly self-revelatory verse, and they go on to say it's associated with American poets like Lowell and Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton, 
So again, I feel like there's such so much overlap between lyric and confessional, right? I mean, if you're talking in a lyric poem about how you feel, at what point does it cross over into being confessional? Is it about detail? Is it about the specificities and the fact that it seems like it must be true? And then again, if we look at this definition of narrative poetry, which is said to be poetry that tells a story, often making the voices of a narrator and characters as well, where's the line between talking about your feelings in a lyric poem, confessing details of your life in a confessional poem, and then telling a story in a narrative poem? I just feel like it gets really muddy. Um, I could be wrong. And hey, if you have better definitions of these, please let me know. Because <laughs> I'm clearly struggling with it. But yeah, I just think it's really interesting to think about what we define as narrative, what we define as confessional, and what we define as lyric. And is there a way that the gender of the poet plays into those definitions? Are we going to be more likely to say a female poet's being confessional? Or are we going to be more likely to say that a male poet is is allowed to write in the lyric form and that that must not be his that must not be him that he's writing about whereas if it's a female writer it definitely is her I don't know these are just questions I'm throwing out there I got no good answers but um yeah these things these things play on my mind you know if I'm trying to write a review of a book I'm always tr trying to think okay is there a category that I can put these poems into and I often just draw a blank I really struggle when I try to write about where does this book fit, where does this poet's work fit, because I just feel like poets are always moving in between these definitions and they're just not very satisfactory. So to give you a little bit more to think about in terms of those questions, I'm going to read you this section from further into the glass essay called Hero. It's quite a long section and it deals with some pretty heavy subject matter. But I don't think I really need to do a close reading here because it's so clear what's happening. But I think it's a good example of poetry that exists in the middle of that Venn diagram. So, hero. I can tell by the way my mother chews her toast whether she had a good night and is about to say a happy thing or not. Not. She puts her toast down on the side of her plate. You know you can pull the drapes in that room, she begins. This is a coded reference to one of our oldest arguments from what I call the Rules of Life series. My mother always closes her bedroom drapes tight before going to bed at night. I open mine as wide as possible. I like to see everything, I say. What's there to see? Moon, air, sunrise... All that light on your face in the morning wakes you up. I like to wake up. At this point, the drapes argument has reached a delta and may advance along one of three channels. There is the what you need is a good night's sleep channel, the stubborn as your father channel, and random channel. More toast, I interpose strongly, pushing back my chair. Those women, says my mother with an exasperated rasp. 
Mother has chosen random channel. Women? Complaining about rape all the time. I see she is tapping one furious finger on yesterday's newspaper lying beside the grape jam. The front page has a small feature about a rally for International Women's Day. Have you had a look at the Sears summer catalogue? Nope. Why, it's a disgrace, those bathing suits cut way up to here, she points. No wonder. You're saying women deserve to get raped because Sears bathing suit ads have high-cut legs? Ma, are you serious? Well, someone has to be responsible. Why should women be responsible for male desire? My voice is high. Oh, I see, you're one of them. One of whom? My voice is very high. Mother vaults it. And whatever did you do with that little tank suit you had last year? The green one. It looked so smart on you. The frail fact drops on me from a great height that my mother is afraid. She will be 80 years old this summer. Her tiny sharp shoulders, hunched in the blue bathrobe, make me think of Emily Bronte's little Merlin hawk, Hero, that she fed bits of bacon at the kitchen table when Charlotte wasn't around. So Ma, we'll go. I pop up the toaster and toss a hot slice of pumpernickel lightly across onto her plate. Visit Dad today? She eyes the kitchen clock with hostility. Leave at 11, home again by 4, I continue. She is buttering her toast with jagged strokes. Silence is a scent in our code. I go into the next room to phone the taxi. So you can see how there's elements that you would definitely categorize as lyric in there, talking about the emotions that are coming up over the breakfast table. There's definitely a narrative going on because there's a story of eating breakfast together and preparing to go and visit her dad in the, in the care home. But there's definitely a confessional element too, isn't there? It's like talking about those three streams of argument that she has with her mum. It's so intimate. It's just such a, a beautiful detail to share with a reader. It's such an intimate conversation to share as well, talking with your mum about, you know, what who's to blame for male violence against women. That's, you know, something that is pretty tough to put down on paper, let alone publish and share with the world. So, yeah, I think this idea that um, Carson is notoriously reticent is pretty short-sighted, really. Um, yeah, but be that as it may, I think this poem, The Glass Essay, is actually a great one to read if you're just getting started with poetry because there are some beautiful, mysterious lines, but there's so much around those moments of mystery that you can grab onto and there's it, it reads a, a lot like a story which is I think why she's called it the glass essay there's a little line in here from her bio on poetry foundation that says um one of her critics says how prosaic rhetorical or argumentative can a poem be before it becomes something else altogether before it reverts to prose to essay I think it definitely is a poem definitely fits into the category of a long poem but there's a lot of arguments being made there's a lot of there's a lot of work being done outside the work of just representing reality in a heightened more interesting way 
So yeah, I would recommend this poem to beginners for sure, even though it deals with such heavy subject matter. I think it's a great one to look at if you want to tackle your first long poem. But of course, it's a great one if you are dealing with the prospect of that dreaded visit back home, or if you're in the throes of post-breakup brokenheartedness. It's just incredibly comforting, really, really beautiful, but you don't need to be in any of those states to appreciate it. I think it's just, yeah, just got some absolutely mind-blowing moments. So I'll link to the full text if you want to have a proper read. And as always, if there are other poems you want me to have a close look at, or if there's a poem you want to come on and chat about yourself, get in touch with me at poetrysays.com or on Twitter at poetrysays. Thanks so much for listening, guys. I'll catch you next time.